Hello and welcome to episode 112 of section 138. I'm your host, Mark Colley. As always, I'm joined by Bryson and Jacob. How are you guys? Doing great, Mark. Less than a week now till opening day, so getting better and better each week. Yep, it's our last podcast of spring training slash the offseason before the regular season starts, barring any last-minute injuries or crazy news. So, knock on wood, that won't happen, but Jacob, how are you? I was going to say the same thing. I am absolutely fantastic knowing that in less than a week, we will now have real meaningful baseball that we can analyze and most likely lose our minds over. Yeah, we definitely will. Five days, five days, and we're really excited. Um, We're also really excited for this episode. We had the chance to sit down with none other than Dan Schulman, Blue Jays TV play-by-play broadcaster. He was nice enough to cut some time out of his day for us and talk a little bit about what things are going to look like on the broadcast side of things for this season for Blue Jay fans. So we'll go to that interview first, and then we'll come back and talk about some of the latest things with the Blue Jays. But first, our conversation with Dan Schulman. Dan, thanks so much for coming on. You got it, Mark. My pleasure. Um, So things are obviously looking a lot different for both fans and on the broadcast side of things this year. Um, You put out a wonderful thread on Twitter that kind of broke down the broadcast situation and how things will look different. Um, For fans who may have missed that thread, can you just walk people through kind of what things are going to change this year, how it's going to look different with radio, TV, who you're going to be broadcasting with, where you're going to be broadcasting from? Sure. So that was my first thread because there was a lot of information to cover and (laughs) I did it as succinctly as I could. So there were kind of two parts to it. The first was the technical aspect. So um, the Blue Jays are in a unique position being the only team that can't cross the border. And as a result, we're in a unique position as a broadcast group. So last year, as you probably know, uh, Buck and I did all 60 games from the Tim and Sid studio in Toronto. We're going to be in a different situation this year. Buck will stay, uh, at least for the time being, Buck lives in Florida. He can drive to the ballpark in Dunedin. Tabby lives in Ohio. I live in Toronto. Uh, so everybody's going to stay on their own side of the border uh, for the time being, certainly as long as the team is playing home games in Dunedin. So when they're when they are at home in Dunedin, Tabby will fly down to Florida and he and Buck will call the games from the ballpark. When they are on the road, I will call the game from the Sportsnet studio, not the Tim and Sid studio. Tim and Friends is back in there now. So they've Uh, I'm still in quarantine, so I haven't seen it yet. So, but I'm going down Monday to see my setup. I'm in a boardroom on the third floor, they tell me. Uh, So I will call the games from the Sportsnet studio and I'll be joined by either Buck or Tabby, who each have had like a broadcast from home kit setup put in their homes. So first week of the season, Yankees, uh, Blue Jays at Yankees, Blue Jays at Rangers. It'll be me and Buck, me in Toronto, Buck in his home. Second week, the Blue Jays are home in Dunedin. It'll be Buck and Tabby from the studio. Uh, from the ballpark, excuse me, in Dunedin. Third week, it'll be me and Tabby, Tabby from his home, me at the Sportsnet studio. So there are a lot of moving parts, as you can see. And obviously, at some point, they're going to move, whether it's Buffalo or Toronto, we don't know. It feels to me like it's Buffalo, and then hopefully eventually Toronto. And then we'll have to figure out a new plan because the, the parameters change. In terms of the simulcasting, which was the other part of the thread, obviously, that's different, too. And we're going to try to do the best we can. We're going to try to give the radio audience a little bit more information than you typically get on a TV broadcast, but we're not going to do a full radio broadcast. That's not what the TV audience wants. So we're going to try to find a a good balance between the two. Um, I've done both, but I've never done them at the same time. So, you know, for me to say this is exactly how we're going to do it, I can't can't say that right now. I kind of got to get going and and figure it out. Mm Mm-hmm. And on the radio simulcast, what do you think you're going to have to kind of keep in mind going into the games? I mean, trying to make sure that you're not alienating either camp. What are you going to right. to have to make sure you're doing? So to me, the two big differences for a radio audience are obviously there are bits of information 
that you need constantly when you're listening on the radio, the score, the count, the outs, the base runners, the inning, that sort of thing. So I think it's important for me to try to get a little bit more of that in. I can't do it. Like you're not going to hear me say every pitch, um, you know, two and one, two down, runner at first. Like I'm not going to say it every pitch. That's too much for the TV audience. But I will try to give those basic elements of information to the radio audience more. The other part of radio is the whole painting the picture part. Uh, and again, I guess I will try to do a little bit. Of, like I said before, I won't know really till I, till I get started. You know, the picture is doing a lot of the work, on, obviously, uh, on TV. So, um, you know, there are certain things, uh, you know, in a slow chopper to third, and, and the third baseman charges in and makes a, you know, a kind of an off-balance throw to get the runner by a step at first. That play is called totally differently on TV than it is on the radio. And uh, again, I'll. I, I'm not 100% sure how I'll do it. I'll, I'll have to see. But I, I'll try to be a little bit more descriptive, I guess, than I normally am, but not as descriptive as I am when I'm just on radio. It, it, it's all about trying to find a balance. But like I said, I, I've kind of got to get in there and, and do it a few times and, and see what feels right. And I just hope people understand this is a, an unusual situation and, and everybody's going to do the best they can with it. Right. Yeah. I can't imagine like just doing play-by-play -play alone seems like it's hard enough, but having to balance both radio and then TV and, and make sure you're cognizant of both audiences sounds really difficult. Well, uh, and, and uh, whether it's Buck or Tabby, I won't even be sitting in the same room as them right. too. So I will see them as we are seeing each other right now on a Zoom call. That's how I will see their face. Um, so there's, uh, there's a lot going on, but we'll figure it out. We've got some great people working very hard to... Um, you know, on the, on our team to, to do the best we can. And again, hopefully um, it's by 2022, this is all of this is all in the past, you know, uh, um, in a million different ways, as we all know, a pandemic has made us do things differently and look at things differently and understand things differently. And uh, this is the way it's going to be done this year. So this is the way we'll do it. Yeah. So I was just wanted to ask you, Dan. So last year, uh, obviously you and Buck were both in the Tim and Sid studio. So you guys were both uh, adjusting to, I guess, not being at the ballpark. And now this year, uh, in, in your situation, since you're still going to be at the studio, uh, but now you won't be in the same room. And it's you've already touched on it, but I just wanted to, you know, to ask you, like, uh, do you have any idea of how that's going to go or any kind of strategy, how you're going to play this one out? Because already, obviously, the challenge of not being there is one, but now you're going to be in a different location as either Buck or uh, Pat, and uh, yep. you guys both won't be at the ballpark. Yeah, I, so I did a lot. I don't know if you guys know, I do college basketball for ESPN, and I did it a lot for ESPN in the winter. There were some games I was on site, um, but I would say probably two-thirds of my games were either from my home or from a studio uh, with the other announcer, whoever it happened to be that game, being in a different place. So um, I don't know if fortunate is the right word, but I'm fortunate to have had some experience doing this. And it is tricky. There are just a lot of technical things that have to go right. Um, you know, so you have to hopefully not have too much of a delay, say, between me and Buck. Otherwise, you know, you know what it's like when you're talking on the phone to somebody and there's a delay. You start before they stop. You step on each other and it happens. It's going to happen. But hopefully that's uh, the delay is as minimal as possible. And then you also want to make sure that the two announcers are in sync with the video so that if you guys are watching at home and Teoscar Hernandez hits a home run, you don't want him at second base by the time I'm saying a swing and a belt. So hopefully these are the things that we're all working through. Uh, Buck, as we speak here on Friday before the season, Buck and Tabby have already had a rehearsal game from their homes. I'm still in quarantine, so I'm going down next week and doing a rehearsal with Buck, with me at, at Sportsnet, just to, to see if everything's in sync. So once you get past all of that, again, I'll be looking at the ballpark on monitors like I was last year. Um, and, and I think we will just, it, it, it won't be as easy just to have those natural free-flowing conversations. I know from college basketball, Jay Billis and I talked about it when we were together at the arena, we never stepped on each other, but uh, when you're in a different place and you're not, you know, you're seeing each other's face just in a little quarter of a box on a computer or something like that, you, it's just a little bit more unnatural to communicate naturally, for lack of a better term. So uh, stuff will happen. But again, I, you know, I hope people understand. I think they understand we're uh, in a unique position. 
Um, and the nice thing is, is that Buck and Tabby and myself all know each other, each other extremely well. And we have for a long, long time. And we've all worked a lot of games together. And I think that comfort with one another will help. And, uh, you know, I promise you stuff's going to happen on opening day against the Yankees and Buck and I and our producer and our director. And we'll talk after the game and say, OK, how do we fix that? How do we do that less? Um, and, you know, so on that level, too, again, you know, I hope people understand there's a lot of stuff going on here and and we're going to do the best we can to get through it. But uh, it'll be challenging uh, on the technical side. But uh, I'll tell you this, by 2022, hopefully going back to a ballpark and calling a game from a ballpark with a broadcaster sitting beside me, that's going to sound like an excellent day in my mind. Yeah, and hopefully it's also back at Rogers Center. So yes. uh, you you also mentioned it right at the top, but um, I'll, I guess I'll ask you. So a move to Buffalo or Toronto at some point seems possible. And um, so you you said how you guys have to figure out a plan then if that happens. Have there been any sort of discussions about that? Are you going to be playing at one step at a time? Uh, there have been discussions. I'm not I'm not uh, sure I'm allowed to publicize those uh, yeah, those no discussions. But so they're they're not going to stay in Dunedin all season. They're going to get out of there before uh, it gets too hot and rainy, which it does. Um, say that's June. I don't think they're coming home in June. I'd love them to come to Toronto, but I don't think they're coming home. But, so I'm going to guess they're going to go to Buffalo and then maybe hopefully come to Toronto. Um, if they go to Buffalo, then all the games we do will be from Buck will be in his home. Tabby will be in my home, uh, not in my home. Tabby will be in his home and I will be at Sportsnet. And then really, if you think about it, we can do whatever we want. Just pick two guys and have them do it remotely. If they come to Toronto, um, it's it's even more up in the air, and we've only had preliminary conversations about it. But you know, an educated guess would be instead of me doing the road games like I'm doing when they're in Dunedin, if they come to Toronto, it obviously makes sense for me to do the home games since I live here in Toronto. Hopefully, that would be at the ballpark. Whether Buck or Tabby would cross the border, I don't know. Whether a quarant that you know that depends on whether a quarantine is still in place, how deep into the season it is. You know, Sportsnet's been really good. Like, they don't want to say to me or Buck or Tabby, you guys have to leave your families for six months to go do your job. And effectively, if they said to me, you've got to go to Florida, I'd be leaving my family for six months. And and I've been away from my family. Not I'm, I don't mean this to sound like a complaint, but I, I've done this already. I, I was away uh, four of the last six months for ESPN, including the last two months. I just got home 10 days ago or whatever it is. So... Sportsnet, it really does not want to move people around. They don't want to separate people from their families if they can. And some tough decisions are having to be made. But um, to get back to your original question, uh, we have to be flexible. We, you know, and, and uh, as soon as the Blue Jays know what the plan is, hopefully they'll tell Sportsnet so we can figure out what we're doing. So tell us a little bit about the personal side of things. I mean, we as fans see the broadcast, but you just mentioned sometimes, you know, you're away from your family for four of six months. I imagine it's incredibly taxing to not know exactly what's going on, not know what the future holds, whether it's Buffalo, Toronto. So tell us a little bit more about mm -hmm. the personal side of things there. Yeah, it's uh, I always say to people, you know, like yourselves who are contemplating getting into the business and I have a son who wants to get into the business don't get into this business unless you're prepared to, to make sacrifices. You're not going to have, unless you're one of the very, very few, you're not going to have a Monday to Friday, nine to five, be home for dinner, sleep in your own bed every night kind of job. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and if you're okay with that, then, then by all means, go for it. So, you know, this winter, again, because of the pandemic, um, being Canadian, I was in a, a, an unusual spot for ESPN. So there were some games, I'm sitting here in my office right now, looking at my monitor and camera and the light and all that. There were some games I did from home, um, but for a lot of them, because some of the games I did were still coming from the arena, I had to go down to the US and because I had to go down, I couldn't come back. And so I, I spent eight weeks in Charlotte. ESPN has a, a studio in Charlotte. So I lived out of a hotel and the games that I didn't do on site, I did from the studio in Charlotte which had the identical setup to what I have in my house, basically. Um, and listen, it wasn't great, but uh, my wife is very understanding. And we both knew that when college basketball was over, we were both really, really certain that I was going to come home for the whole baseball season. So, you know, if you're going to be away for two months, but you know, then you're coming home for six months, that makes the two months a little bit easier to deal with. So, um, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I've had long road trips and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, 
because of travel and the nature of my job. Um, you know, one thing I, I also say to people is it, if you're in play by play, if you do events, games, you play when people work and you work when people play. You know, most of my work is uh, nights and weekends. I mean, obviously, I'm doing work during the day, preparing and all that. But nights and weekends are when the games happen, generally. So, you know, you got to get into it with an open mind saying, I really love this and I want to make this work. But it, it's it's unusual. So, um, but, but it's all good. I, again, there have been people, obviously, who have suffered tremendously during this pandemic in every conceivable way. I've been very, very fortunate. Everyone in my life is doing okay. And um, I'm still working. And so I'm, I'm not complaining. If you have to spend a little time away from home or make some other accommodations, that's okay. And yeah, Dan, uh, you were mentioning too as well how busy you are just now. And I've always wanted to ask you this. And I was always curious on how this was working. Since you already have a you know, other obligations with ESPN and sometimes you're not usually calling every single Blue Jays game. Obviously, last year was different. You know, how hard is it to kind of stay up to date uh, with the team when you're not calling the games every day? And I guess this year, right, you're only going to be calling road games to start. So how difficult will it be for you to uh, keep up for them every day? Not really. My So my ESPN baseball obligations are limited at this point. Um, when I first came back to the Blue Jays in 2016, I was still doing Sunday night baseball for ESPN, but I was only doing 30 Blue Jay games. Now I'm doing, let's call it 75 Blue Jay games, but I'm doing much less baseball for ESPN. I left Sunday night baseball and I still do between TV and radio, maybe 10 to 12 games during the regular season. And then I do the playoffs. So it's not really hard keeping up with the Blue Jays. Um, you know, I probably do what you guys do. If you miss the game, I watch Jays in 30 and, and that, that helps. Uh, and you know, the internet is a wonderful thing and I can get on zoom calls and, and read game notes and all that. Um, so even if I'm not calling the Jays game, I will at the very least watch Jays and 30 and, and have a basic understanding of, of what happened. Um, it's a little bit trickier, trickier, probably the other way. Like if I have seven games in seven days on a road trip for the blue Jays. And then on the eighth day, if I'm calling the giants and the Dodgers, I've got to do some giants and Dodgers work while I'm doing the Blue Jays games that week. But but I'm used to it. Um, for a long, long time, I've done, uh, I did and now do both. Uh, sometimes more of this, less of that. Sometimes more of that, less of this. Um, way back in the day, too, I did college basketball and NBA for ESPN and was doing kind of three, four games uh, a week. So I could have like a Thursday game at Georgetown, a Friday game in Oklahoma City, a Saturday game at Duke and a Sunday game in Denver or something like that. Um, and I did that for a few years. So I, I kind of treat every game I do like it's an exam and I cram for it. And as soon as the exam's over, I flush it out of my mind and I get ready for the next one. So um, it, it, it's okay, really. It, it, it's manageable. There are, there are guys who do more sports than I do. I, I, I'm amazed by the guys who will do baseball, basketball and football. And sometimes we'll do college football and NFL or college basketball and NBA. So they're in effect doing, you know, four different things. I'm really doing two different things, baseball and college basketball. So it's, it's manageable. Yeah, I'm sure the prep work sounds, sounds awesome and very intense, but when it comes to calling a baseball game and you're actually in the, in the studio or at the ballpark or wherever, wherever the case may be, what would you say your most valuable asset is in terms of gaining and gathering information about the scenarios and what's going on in the game? Like, do you say have, you know, your own playbook or is there an in-ear monitor or something? And uh, how, how has that kind of changed throughout the pandemic and going from an in-person setting to a virtual setting like this one? Yeah. So during the pandemic, you're much more dependent on monitors and your computer than you are normally. Uh, normally at a game, at a baseball game, I watch our monitor as the pitches are coming in. So I can see what the pitch is doing, same as you guys see at home. And as soon as the ball is hit, I look at the field. Now, instead of looking at the field, I look at a monitor and I've got to decide which camera angle I want to look at to try to get the best shot of the play. And sometimes the relay throw is in a different monitor than the runner rounding third, than the play at the plate. They're all happening in different places. So that, that takes a little bit of getting used to, but I think the most important thing, um, you know, I've always kind of thought of myself as a prepaholic. I do a lot of preparation and like, I really love baseball. I really like baseball. So uh, I'm hopeful that even if something's going on and I'm not quite sure what's, what it is, because I can't quite see it, I'm hoping I can make an educated guess and say, here's what I think is happening. 
And you guys may remember there were, I don't know, five, six times probably last year when me or Buck or both would say, guys, we're really not sure right now. It looked on our monitor like this, but we didn't get the shot of the umpire or we're waiting to see. And I believe in being totally transparent. Like, I, I kind of think we're all in this together. I think I'm one of you guys and, and we're all watching a game together. So it's OK to say uh, I'm not really sure what's going on. But, you know, the more preparation you can do before the game. Great. But during the game, I always tell young broadcasters, like, don't be, you know, don't be always looking down at your notes. Don't be always reading. Oh, I got to get in this. I got to get in this. Watch the game. Like, make sure you see what's happening on the field. And uh, I'm kind of lucky, I guess, when I write stuff down in my notes, it makes it stick in my head. Um, so I, I, I write all of these notes and I don't refer to them all that much during the game. Um, you know, there are moments when you can, obviously, if Buck's going, you know, if Buck's talking about something and I know where he's going or commercial breaks or pitching changes, whatever. But I, I try to, whether it's basketball or baseball, I try to watch the game as much as I can, because the last thing you want to do is miss something. Yeah, for sure. Well, we don't want to take up too much of your time, so we can call quits there. But thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciated all the insight into how things are going to look this year. All right, guys, we'll try to do a good job for you. Be well. That was our conversation with Dan Schulman. A big thank you to him again for taking the time out of his day and shed some insight on everything happening this season with Sportsnet and what things will look like for Blue Jay fans. Let's turn now to the news of the week. The biggest news that we got, and we already talked about it, but all the injuries. Kirby Yates, we got some updates on him. Apparently the Blue Jays knew he was injured or at least wasn't up to, you know, totally up to par in terms of his arm before they signed him and they lowered his deal from about 8 million guaranteed to the guaranteed that he got 5.5 million, but they still signed him. So a lot of people are saying, why would on earth would the Blue Jays do this? It seems like a huge mistake. And obviously now that he's out for the entire season with Tommy John surgery, it, it just doesn't make sense. At the same time, though, there's a lot of people saying this is an appropriate risk, right? It's $5.5 million for a guy who, yes, he has an injury history. Yes, you can tell in his physicals before he signs a deal that he's not totally healthy. But he also has a chance to be who he was in 2019. So knowing all of that, where do you guys stand on whether the Blue Jays should have taken this risk in the first place? Because I'm a little bit torn. It is an interesting conversation to have over whether the Blue Jays should have ever taken this risk. So where do you guys stand on this? I'll be completely honest. I'm just as torn as you are, considering that, yes, there was a lot of risk involved, but there also had the potential to be a lot of reward. And when you look at what happened with Kirby Yates, I think that does change the way we perceive the move, because we know now that he is out for the season, and that obviously makes us feel as if, well, you know what, maybe that wasn't the best move, because now we don't have him. However, on the flip side, say... You know, the elbow issues don't happen. The Tommy John surgery doesn't go underway. He ends up pitching for the Blue Jays and gives them, you know, 30, 40, maybe even more saves. I would consider that to be one of the best moves they made all offseason. So it really, I think it just comes down to opinion. Do you think that the risk was worth it? I think it was worth it going back to earlier in the offseason when they made the move. Because, again, if it worked, it would have really worked. But knowing that it didn't work... I don't think we can necessarily say this was a bad move because it didn't work. Well, at the time, it had the potential to work. And yes, obviously, 2020 was a down year for Kirby Yates, but 2019, he was fantastic, led the league in saves. And I don't think that that's necessarily a an uncalculated risk. Yes, there's a high risk, but I think there was a lot of justification for it. So it's a very sad ending to a season. I don't think we can necessarily ignore that, but... Going back to earlier in the offseason, I think this was probably the right move to make. And I think we all should need to remember that this is not the be-all, end-all for the Blue Jays, because they do have two other guys that could take over the closer role. One of them will now, and I think we're all confident in them. So when you look back last year with the closer issues, we were all worried and we needed somebody to audition for that role. But now they have somebody that can take over that role, and that's that's something that I'm confident in. But yeah, it's it was a calculated risk, and unfortunately it just... it. It did not work out for the Blue Jays, but 
I don't know if I would have done it necessarily any differently. You know, you, you take a risk on a guy, worst case, you know, this happens, but best case, he's one of the best closers in the league. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think this was 100% worth the risk. And now going back to, um, I guess, our emergency episode a, f- a few days ago, I can definitely look back and say that I was definitely in the heat of the moment. Um, I went back and actually listened to it this morning, and uh, I was pretty fired up. But uh, I've, I think I've calmed down a bit, probably because there hasn't been any injuries. Um, probably because there hasn't been any injury the injuries the past couple of days. We're still dealing with some ongoing ones, but um, everything seems to be like I guess the same. There hasn't really been anything new. But when you look at it now, Kirby Yates. Well, first of all, for people who are complaining about the money that Kirby Yates got, the one thing I'll say to them is, well, number one, it's not your money, so who cares? Um, in terms of people saying, oh, it's what a waste of $5 million, what a waste of this and that. The one thing that it, it kind of intrigues me a little bit, or the one thing I kind of scratch my head at, though, is that the fact that he failed not one, but two physicals. He failed one with Atlanta. Uh, he was supposed to sign with Atlanta, and then Atlanta completely uh, backed out of the deal. And he signed with the Blue Jays, he failed a physical, and then the Jays had to readjust their salary to him. Uh, and, t- and then, of course, a lot of it was uh, more transition towards incentives, after the second time he failed his physical. So the Jays were well aware. And I think the fact that they adjusted their salary to him definitely proved that and definitely showed that they are they were willing to do this. Obviously, this was probably one of the worst cases to pan out in terms of him blowing out his arm or blowing out his elbow in the spring, requiring a second Tommy John surgery, something that probably was probably the worst uh, scenario for them for sure. And um, when you look at it now as well, in terms of the depth chart, you know, the way some of these people are lined up, why not take a risk on Kirby Yates? Right now, uh, Jordan Romano or Rafael Dolis will be the closer, one of the two. And the one who's not the closer will be the setup man or in the late-inning situation. Other, other than those two, you have Tyler Chatwood, uh, David Phelps, Ryan Barucki, Trent Thornton, and Tim Meza. Those are my locks, I think, to get in the bullpen. And, um, of course, Hatch and Pearson, those are two roster spots right now. And there's a whole bu- a handful of names that are still in the mix. There's Julian Merriweather, who's just getting back now. There's TJ Zoic. There's AJ Cole. Uh, there's Castro, who's impressed so far this season, or this spring. There's Liriano, uh, somebody who I think Jacob and I both think will be on the roster. So that's one of our picks. Uh, Travis Burgeon, someone who they just reacquired. And, and then, of course, he was the one who involved in the um, Robbie Ray trade. So it comes full circle. They get Burgeon back. There's Tommy Malone. Mark, I know we've had a segment about him before, and uh, there's a chance he gets in. There's Joel Payamps. And, of course, there's Anthony Kay. But Anthony Kay is a question mark for me because I really don't know and, you know, if he's the Jays really want him to start the year as a reliever, which is why he may be the odd man out and go back and go down to Buffalo at this case in AAA and start uh, the season there as a starter. Of course, it's nothing against his performance. It's just the Jays are frankly out of spots right now. So, you know, all those names that you have, there, there is a lot of options for sure. But Kirby Yates, you know, why not take a chance on the guy who led the league in saves or had a ERA below two in 2019, his last healthy season? And then, of course, last year, we all know the injury problems he had that year. And, of course, 2021, you're hoping for a bounce back year. And not maybe something not exactly as 2019, but something that is, you know, doable or something that is good or, some, you know, something for a good closer. You know, and a lot of saves. An ERA maybe, you know, around three and a half at worst, at worst, you know, anything below that would be acceptable. And this team hasn't dealt with really having a set in stone closer now for a couple of years. Ken Giles went down. Um, and then this year, now Kirby Yates, who was supposed to start the season as the closer, is not there. So, you know, Charlie Montoyo came out and pretty much said, I think to start the year, they're going to be flexible with it. It could go to Romano. It could go to Delise. It can go to somebody else. We might see a whole bunch of people close out games for this team in the first month of the season. And then maybe as the season goes on, they kind of stick with one person. And I think that's fair. I think it's good to have an open competition with a a few of these people. And, um, you know, don't rush making a decision right now. Because, like I mentioned just a minute ago, the worst case scenario was to lose Kirby Yates in the spring. So, for me, 100% worth the risk. And I'm glad they readjusted the salary and the contract after the second failed physical, but for Kirby Yates as well, it, m- it must be an absolute bummer going, you know, he's already had Tommy John once and now he's got to have Tommy John again. And really his future as a pitcher and, you know, it's, as for his career is really uncertain at this point. Yeah, that's for sure. Regardless of, you know, anything that has to do with the Blue Jays or the Braves or really anything like the actual fact that he's out for a second season that has to be a really big bummer for him. I can't imagine. He seems to be in somewhat good spirits. He's been posting a little bit on Instagram. I know his wife posted on Instagram about 
getting to spend more time with him this season. So I guess that's a plus, but it does have to be rough. Um, I think, yeah, you can't really blame the Blue Jays for making this deal. It, it was really, really enticing. Regardless of the injury concerns there may have been, this is a guy who led all relievers, all of baseball in 2019 with 41 saves and a 1.19 ERA. Like that kind of arm doesn't hit the free agent market that often. And to get him at a bargain of $5.5 million, even if he isn't fully recovered, even if he has a risk of being injured again, that's still a great bargain. That's still very enticing. Um, one of the things I'm a little confused by, though, is that like the Blue Jays front office doesn't seem to be the type of front office to take gambles like this a lot. They're often, you know, Mark Shapiro, Ross Atkins, they're often very cautious in the signings they make, in the deals they make, the moves they make. And I was surprised that, you know, knowing the problems that they saw in his physical and his MRI, they still signed him anyway. That's a little bit, it, it seems uncharacteristic for me for Shapiro and Atkins, especially when the Braves are a team who apparently when they saw the MRI, they had significant concerns about, you know, consistent injuries in, in, in his elbow, which I assume had to do with his UCL as, you know, now he's undergoing Tommy John surgery, but they, you know, practically decimated his contract from, I think it was like eight or 9 million. Um, yeah, 9 million guaranteed. They knocked it down significantly. We don't know the exact number they knocked it down to, but it sounds like it was a lot more than the Blue Jays knocked their 8.5 million down to 5.5. So I'm surprised that Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro were still as aggressive as they were in getting Kirby Yates. That's not to knock their decision to sign him. Again, I think it was an enticing opportunity, $5.5 million. It's a worthwhile gamble. I'm just surprised, given the people that we know lead the Blue Jays, that they made this decision. Mm, I think the the way I'm looking at it is I think this is their first real bargain of a deal where, you know, most of the, the trades and acquisitions they've made, even going back to 2016, you know, we were expecting a David Price and we got absolutely nothing like that. And the team was still extremely good. Even, you know, in that offseason and going forward, they made a lot of very low-risk deals that still ended up working. And I think this offseason is where we really started to see them kind of take a gamble, obviously, with George Springer. That's not necessarily a gamble, but that's still, you know, a still a massive deal. Uh, but with Kirby Yates, I think this is really, this was their way of saying, we'll see what works. You know, again, when I go back to my original point, this deal was either going to work extremely well and he was going to be you know, arguably an all-star or... Who knows? And I, unfortunately, the who knows is what ended up happening. And I don't know if necessarily the Blue Jays can learn from this. I guess you can say, you know, be more cautious when you make moves. But at the same time, signing somebody is a very case by case basis. So I, this is just the way I see it. This is their way of, of really testing themselves. What are they willing to kind of give up and, and gamble? And unfortunately, this one came back to bite them. But I don't think that this is necessarily going to mean that from now on, they're not going to try and be as aggressive or or go for those underdog signings that have the potential to work, but also have the potential to not work. Yeah, Mark, you made a good point. I didn't even think of it, is how this front office very rarely makes these, like, like I guess, risky moves. And this one was because of his health. And I'll go back to it again. The one part that really confused me was the fact that they knew he signed, or he failed two physicals with Atlanta, too. Like, that. that's where I get a little bit... Uh, confused and curious but you know usually like this team is signing people to minor league deals with invites to spring training and uh, that's how they crack the, the roster and it's low risk because obviously it's one year and then um, it's just it's not a high salary so that's that's the one thing when you look at it but yeah the the, the two failed um, physicals that that even like that scratches my head like I was completely um, I was unaware of the Atlanta or you know, Atlanta trying to sign him beforehand or the fact that he was supposed to be on Atlanta. So that one really uh, caught me off guard. But um, you know what? They they did the best they could. They readjusted the contract. They made it all incentives because of the possibility of this happening. And um, I think that was the best, you know, situation they could have handled, like the way they could have handled it because of um, he, the fact that he was under contract and uh, they knew the risks. So Kirby Yates, maybe he comes back next year. You can't rule anything out, but uh, he's definitely not going to be pitching this year. And uh, it's just a bit concerning for him because of two Tommy John surgeries. But um, now the Jays have to look forward, maybe upgrade in the bullpen, maybe because we discussed that a few days ago in terms of that they're open to adding now, uh, regardless if it's starting pitching uh, for the bullpens, anything. So the Jays are 
completely open to anything at this point, and I guess that's the only thing that you can take away from it following Kirby Yates' um, Tommy John surgery. Yeah, I feel like the Blue Jays are normally a team that takes low-risk, high-reward deals. AJ Cole, Rafael Dolis, even like, I don't know, Lourdes Goriel Jr. signing him to a 70 or $20 million deal. Like, that's a low-risk, high-reward. But this deal was high-risk, high-reward. Again, not to knock it at all, it's just kind of out of the ordinary. Um, let's turn now to the topic of the starting roster on opening day. We've seen a little bit of a trickle of news concerning it. We've seen news that Joe Panic is now going to make the opening day roster. He's been told he's going to be on the opening day roster, but the Blue Jays aren't making a corresponding move until closer when they actually finalize the rest of the roster. Um, I think a lot of us thought Santiago Espinal would be on the opening day roster. Uh, of course, we know the realities of righty-lefty balance on the bench. Having Joe Panic, of course, helps with that. He's a veteran influence. They obviously like him. Um, I mean, just going back to last night, he had a good game last night. He made a couple good plays up the middle. So, uh, I mean, I don't know how much there is to talk about here. I don't think we're incensed by the fact that Santiago, Santiago Espinal didn't make the roster. I had one person DM me on Instagram, and he was livid that Espinal was not making the roster I understand why the Blue Jays are making this decision. Like, I'm not mad about it. I would have gone with Espinal, but it, yeah. Yeah, I'll be completely honest. I, I'm i not shocked, so to say, but I am a little bit surprised because I did think Santiago Espinal was going to get the advantage. However, when I think about it and I, I really look at it more in depth, I do think the lefty does make more sense. And Joe Panic is a guy with uh, with a lot more major league experience than Santiago Espinal. Last season was his only time in the majors. Whereas Joe Panic has been in there for many years with the Cubs and uh, with the Giants, rather, and many other teams. So I understand wanting to do that and, and also the fact that he is a lefty. Uh, both of them are actually pretty similar in spring training, or at least with with Espinal. He actually has a little bit better numbers. He, Espinal has 10 hits in 29 at-bats, good for a 385 average, whereas Joe Panic has 8 hits in 27 at-bats, which is a 296 average. So, I mean... Similar, you know, I don't necessarily think that you give Espinal the advantage just because he has a couple extra hits in a couple of extra spring training at-bats. I think it ultimately came down to the fact that they wanted a veteran presence. They wanted a lefty. And also with Santiago Espinal, he's not, or he is, he's under team control for the majority or at least half of this decade. Whereas uh, with Joe Panic, he's a free agent at the end of this season. With Espinal, he's pre-arbitration eligible, he's arbitration eligible, like he's within the organization for many years, so it's not as if, you know, you, you don't have him on the roster this year, you miss out on him. So I guess that's the only way I can think of it. I don't think this is the end of the Toronto Blue Jays and Santiago Espinal, but I am you know a little bit surprised that he isn't making the roster, but at the end of the day, if the Blue Jays pick Joe Panic, clearly they know they know a little bit different, or they know something different than I do, so I'm not not as worried or not as concerned. It's just, this is just how, you know, spring training goes. And it's unfortunate when you see players get cut. Yeah. I'm not surprised at all with uh, Joe panic making the team. I think once he re-signed here at the beginning of the spring, I think that was the full on intention due to the fact that this team really likes Joe panic. And I think we saw that um, last year with Joe panic when he came over and he came over on a low risk deal. And for someone like Santiago Espinal, yeah, Jacob, he's young, right? He's got a lot of team control. I'm not worried about any of that. He, he'll he be up at some point this year. You know, it's a full season. That All that stuff is pretty much a guarantee. And even if Joe Panic starts the year off slow, um, I think right away, regardless if it's May or June, Santiago Espinal will be that first guy to replace him in the case if he struggles. And of course, barring any injuries, Santiago Espinal is probably one of the first people that will be called up. And he, you know, Espinal's put together a pretty good spring himself. Um, regardless if you, how much or how, how seriously you uh, take a look at spring training stats, his OPS is over 990. And um, his average is at 357 with one home run and four RBI. So Panic as well has put together a nice spring. And, the, you know, as the the spring closes, you get, you kind of have a sense of where this team will go with the roster. And of course, barring any more injuries, God forbid, um, we've, we've had enough already. But, you know, there's a projected injured list too, which is great. So um, when you look at the bench, you know, you, you have the catching situation. Will it be Reese McGuire? Will it be Alejandro Kirk? We all think it'll be Kirk, and hopefully that's the case. But McGuire as well is out of options, so that makes it complicated. Randall Gritchick will probably be the fourth outfielder, even though he'll be in and out of the lineup every day. 
And then the la- that last spot is the one we're talking about right now between Joe Panic and Santiago Espinal. The fact that he's also a lefty, I think, makes it um, or gives him advantage. Gives him an advantage for sure. So that's the one thing I take from it. But you know, this team likes Joe Panic. They brought him back for a reason. And the fact that they brought him back almost screams the idea that he was going to make the roster. 100%. So that's why I'm not surprised whatsoever, and this was something that I saw coming. And for Santiago Espinal, he gets to go back down to Buffalo and start the year there after there was no minor league season last year. He continues to develop, and um, he can easily be somebody that comes up within the first, the first month of the season at the earliest. So Santiago Espinal will be here at some points this year. Maybe it's multiple stints. Maybe he just takes Joe Panic's spot at first, but to start the year, it'll be Joe Panic who gets that advantage. And um, Rightfully so, because Joe Panic did have a good 2020, regardless if you liked him or not. I know he had a slow start, but near the end of the year, he um, he played good, and, and you can't nobody can deny that. So that's why I'm completely on board with Joe Panic at least starting the year here and getting the advantage and the opportunity to maintain a spot on this roster. Yep. The next guy we want to talk about in terms of making the roster is Alec Manoa. Now, this is not someone I want to talk about in this conversation. Let me make that clear, but. So many people have been saying, well, does Manoa make the roster, right? All these people are injured. Does Manoa have a chance of making the roster or even playing with the Blue Jays this season? Let me shut that down right now. I think we all agree on this. It is absurd to even consider Alec Manoa to make his Major League debut before September. He has pitched, and I got his baseball reference page up now, 17 professional innings. 17 professional innings. He's appeared in six professional games, and that's in low A in Vancouver. That's it. That is it. He has not pitched above low A in his entire career. He's only got college ball and low A on his baseball reference page. Yes, he's had a good spring training. Yes, he's faced some tough opponents in the Yankees and some other teams, and he does have, you know, 15 strikeouts in seven innings. He's only allowed one hit. He's not making the roster. I don't care how good he is in spring training. He could pitch a perfect game for all I care. He would not be making the roster. He has 17 professional innings. He needs more development. That's just the bottom line. It's absurd to even consider him making the roster before September. And if he is making the roster this year at all, the Blue Jays are in a bad position, right? He is a desperation move in September if he makes the roster. The Blue Jays will only put him on on the roster in September if they have no other arms to pitch, right? Same with Simeon Woods Richardson, I think. If you're rolling either of these guys out on the roster this season, it's the worst case scenario because everyone else has fallen apart. That's my opinion. You know, I'm, I'm a little less certain about Simeon Woods Richardson. I think he has a higher chance of making the roster, but Alec Manoa, I see absolutely zero chance. The earliest I see him making the majors is next season, end of April, early May, after that service time is run out, if we see the same service time provisions um, in the collective bargaining agreement, which is unsure. But I think it's absurd to even be talking about him making the roster. I'll say one thing. You don't go from low A to the majors just because you've had a few good spring training starts. And that's not a knock on Alec Manoa. I don't think that he is a bad pitcher, and I do think he is going to be a good major league pitcher. It's just not this year. And Mark, as you said it beautifully, if if... Alec Manoa is on the roster in September, it's because the Blue Jays are absolutely terrible and they're just calling up guys because they just need people to finish off the schedule. I don't think that... There's two things that I don't like. The Blue Jays have a full bullpen. Arguably, there's some injuries, but for the most part, it is full. And second of all, they're supposed to be competing. You don't want to rush a guy in and say, okay, here's you know the New York Yankees in uh, you know a clinching game in September. We need you to pitch. And that might not even be the case, but you get the idea. The Blue Jays are supposed to compete and they want to keep guys and have guys when they're ready. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of prospects that I want to see make the roster this season just because I like them and I want to see them, but you don't rush players, especially not in baseball. This isn't like other sports where, you know, you draft a guy first overall in, in, in June in the NHL and he's, you know, scoring four goals in October. That's, that's just not how it happens. So to everybody that thinks he's making the roster, don't like, this is not happening. Maybe next season, maybe in September, but you know we're gonna need to you know pray a lot for that to happen, and some bad things are gonna happen to the Blue Jays or have to happen if they want them to make the roster. But it's not happening, and I'll leave it at that. 
a little bit of an Austin Matthews reference there, Jacob. I understood that. Um, I had to yeah. pull that one out. And yeah, I like that reference. Anyways, yeah, no, Alec Manoa. There is absolutely zero percent. But I'm surprised, Mark. You're not um, as high on Simeon Woods Richardson. A lot of people are. Um, a lot of people are really kind of giving that a little bit of life, and uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all. With Woods Richardson, maybe it'd have to be later on in the season for sure. But you know, I, I'm not going to rule that out. I, I just I don't think it's. I'll I'll say around 35-40% that he's up this year, Woods Richardson. Manoa is an easy 0%. I think you're bang on with that. But to be fair as well, Alejandro Kirk hasn't played above A-ball either. So I'm just saying, he, you know, we've seen crazy things before in terms of people making the jump. Obviously a different position, um, a different situation. So it's kind of unfair anyway to compare that. But yeah, um, for people, you know, complaining or saying Alec Manoa, Alec Manoa... Mark, you went over his numbers anyway, and also not to mention last year, he didn't pitch anywhere. I don't think he was part of the alternate site. Maybe correct me if I'm mistaken, and if he wasn't, he was pitching, I don't know, some probably at some sort of field anyway in Florida where he lives. So, you know, he wasn't exactly doing much last year, but uh, very promising to see him this year. Him and Woods Richardson have kind of been, um, they kind of established themselves this spring as like that you know, one, a one-two duo in terms of prospects. And they were, they've were they kind of been pitching after each other in games, and it's been really impressive. We went over that game a couple of weeks ago when both of them were striking out the Yankees like it was nothing. And that was pretty impressive, regardless from both of them. Um, I think both of them struck out Judge as well with the fastball. So, you know, the velo is there for both of them. The potential is there for both of them. And those guys are really the real deal. And, you know, Simeon Woods-Richardson, regardless if he's up this year or next year, um, depending on our the way he looks now, it's going to be a lot. I'll tell you one thing: it'll be a lot easy. It'll be very easy. Sorry for us to forget about Marcus Stroman or to remember Marcus Stroman. It's going to be easy for us to uh, move on from that and know who Simeon Woods Richardson is. Somebody who just wasn't exactly um, well received in terms of the trade. We've we've discussed that before, but you know, if he pans out the way he looks and the way people are saying, uh, he's going to be one special player in the um, in the MLB. So that's. That's the one thing I take from it as well. But even next year, I don't even know if Alec Manoa is a guarantee to be on the roster in 2022. I really don't know because, you know, who I don't exactly know either for this year where he'll start for the minor leagues. And maybe he goes to double A right away. If not, he'll be going to Vancouver and high A. I think that's the new um, farm system this year. But either way, high A maybe at the, the lowest and then maybe throughout the year work his way up. But he's got a lot of development to do for sure. And he hasn't played consistently in the past year because of what happened last year. So there's no way um, I'm taking him on this team at all. Simeon Woods-Richardson was pitching in 2018. So maybe that gives a little bit more of a um, an advantage or kind of raises the chances of him getting called up. I don't think they're great again, but I do think they're it's possible. And, you know, one or two moves, maybe he improve or dominates in the minor leagues. Maybe there's injuries and they have no choice. A September call up, either or. There's there's a higher chance for him to get called up, but I don't think it's exactly um, through the roof. And uh, for Alec Manoa, yeah, just a lot of fans are definitely excited from what they're seeing. And um, you know, it's it's pretty impressive. People are that excited as well, just because this year there hasn't been a lot of chances to watch the uh, the team in the spring. So you know, a lot of people are hearing about how good he's been, and you know, the times the games have been on TV, he's been. He's been impressive, so there's no question about that, and, and um, you know, he's got a great future, but no, 2021, don't even think about it. I'm completely with both of you guys on that one. Yeah, Simeon Woods-Richardson definitely has a better shot of making the roster. Yeah. Like, you compare Manoa and Woods-Richardson, Woods-Richardson had 17 innings pitched at the end of 2018, and then in 2019, he had a full season in the minors, right? So he's at 124 career innings in professional baseball. I believe he was at the alternate site last year. Again, we don't know about Manoa, but I believe Simeon Woods Richardson was. So he's a guy who does have more experience. I think, you know, in a normal situation, in a normal world, maybe he'd be starting the first month at double A and then I think he'd be kicked up to triple A. We don't know how that's going to work out now that, you know, the minor league season is starting in May um, for AAA, who knows how that shakes out. He's probably going to be starting at the alternate training site. So we don't know what the situation is there, but I definitely think he has a, a greater than zero shot of making the roster in September. Again, don't think it's going to happen until next April, May at the earliest, but it could happen. It's a possibility, but Manoa, not at all. I think if I had to predict, like you said, Bryson, I don't think 2022 is going to happen for him. I think it's 2023 
April slash May. Earliest 2022 April slash May. Maybe he forces a Blue Jays hand. Maybe there's injuries, etc. But that's what I think. Quick question for you two now since we're talking about prospects. What is your, do you have an updated timetable on Austin Martin? What are you guys thinking about Austin Martin right now? I'm, I'm this, I mean, I'm, I hedge in my bets on all these prospects. So I'm going to say probably 2023 as well. I know he was supposed to be in the draft, like one of the most developed hitters um, and one of the most major league ready hitters, but I still don't really see him jumping the line that much, especially when the Blue Jays seem to have everyone they need in the majors already in the infield and to a lesser extent in the outfield. So I don't think we're going to run into a situation where there's injuries that force a Blue Jays hand. So I put it 2023. I'm going to say 2022. And here's why. Marcus Simeon is on a one-year deal. He is at second base this season. After this season, Kevin Biggio goes back to second. You now have a hole in the, in the infield. Maybe that hole, it goes to Austin Martin. It's interesting. Maybe I'm being way too optimistic. I'm I'm really high on this guy. I want him. I want to see him as as quickly as I can. And I know that's very contradictory to pretty much everything I said about uh, Alec Manoa. But I want to see this guy pitch, or I want to see this guy play. Rather, I think it might be next season. Do you think Biggio goes to second and Martin goes to third, or do you think Biggio stays at third and Martin goes to second? Because I know there were concerns about Martin's. Um, arm and his defensive abilities in the draft. I believe that's why he fell a little bit to number five. So I could see Biggio just staying at third and then Martin moving over to second. Jacob's on the spot here. I'm not sure. I think I need to see more of him in order to really make that assessment because we he's played a few games this spring, but I haven't seen him. Like I haven't been able to actually see him just because I don't think many of them have been televised. So I'll say it's a 50-50 shot. You know, maybe if Biggio does really well at third, then, you know, no reason to, to move him back. But at the same time, it's, I'm not sure. It's hard to predict right now. I think we'd really need to see next season or next uh, spring training before we can really make that assessment. Mark, what was the, um, where was the position of concern? Was it second base or third base? I believe it was third base. If I'm remembering correctly, I'm not an expert on the draft, but yeah, I'm just, I'm looking through his game logs back in 2019 with Vanderbilt as well. Like, yeah, he spent most of his time in 2019 at third base. He played 52 games at uh, third base. So he's definitely, clearly they like him over there, but that's a whole different scenario. But the one thing too, we're forgetting here, you know, I know there's a whole next year with Marcus Semyon, regardless if he comes back or not. There's also Jordan Groshans and, uh, you know, He's getting close. He would definitely be closer than Martin in terms of where he at. he's at. He's been through the minor leagues, and he's pretty much knocking at the door. So maybe this year we see Groshans. I'll ask you guys that one now. Is he, is he coming up at some point in 2021? That might be a little no. bit more of a tougher question. <laughs> no. Nope. No? I'm saying all these guys, I'm going to say no. I don't yeah. think. I know people get excited, and they're like, oh, we want to oh, see yeah. these the, guys I'm, right away. That's what I'm feeding off of, no. the fan excitement right now. Yep. <laughs> Spring training can be horrible for that, but let me say one thing. I I thought about this last night, and I don't know why I thought about this, but the Blue Jays have quite a few number of in, <clears throat> infield prospects. Is one of them used as trade bait for a starting pitcher? If it is, it'll be Groshans, in my opinion. You think so? That's yeah. what I thought. If, well, if they mm-hmm. make that big move, Jacob, I think it's Groshans. Yeah. All I hope, and I'll finish with this, is that Kevin Smith does not get traded. <laughs> Love Kevin Smith, friend of the pod. <laughs> Don't want him to leave. That's fair. Um, okay, so the last question we had about the roster before we finish things off today is Jonathan Davis. There could be an opening for him on the roster should George Springer remain injured. We've heard that he's still day-to-day. Charlie Montoyo saying that he is working himself back, but he is still day-to-day. And as we close in five days until opening day, that status gets a little bit more concerning. Is it possible that Jonathan Davis makes an opening day roster? Again, this holy, basically this question is, does George Springer start the season on the injured list, right? Because if George Springer doesn't start the season on the injured list, then it's it George Springer making the roster. In no way Jonathan Davis is making the roster. So that's really what the question is here. But what do you guys think? Well, I'm glad you brought up the, dis- the, uh, the injured list because that's what I was going to say. If George Springer is truly day-to-day, he has all of five days to be ready for the spring or be ready for the season. However, the only thing is, is the Blue Jays play one game against the Yankees on April 1st, and then they're off of off one day. And then they play for, I think two straight weeks, like 14 straight days. 
and then they have a couple of days off throughout the, the second and third week of the season. So if the Blue Jays are really unsure about George Springer and they don't want to have you know three starting outfielders and an injured outfielder that can like DH or something for the first couple weeks of the season, then put him on the, the injured list. I, I don't think that, you know, we have six years with him. The very, very beginning of it is not, I think, the the be-all, end-all. So if he is injured, don't rush him into play just because, you know, he, you signed him and he has to play. Uh, I think that is really the only shot that Jonathan Davis has to make the roster. And I do actually feel bad for him because in 31 at-bats this spring, he has a 10, 10 hits, 5 home runs, and he has a 432 on base percentage. So he's been good. Like, I, this guy has done, I think, what he needs to do to make pretty much any major league roster, at least at least at a, as a fourth outfielder. So it's just, it's unfortunate that the Blue Jays, you know, they have three starting outfielders, arguably four starting outfielders now, so there's just really no room. And it, it doesn't really make sense for them to carry five outfielders. So I think if Jonathan Davis does make the opening day roster, and this is something that I was very intrigued about, but it's it's going to have to be George Springer starts the season on the 10-day injured list. He begins the season there, sits out for the first couple weeks, and then Jonathan Davis gets a shot. But I I really don't see the Blue Jays carrying five outfielders. No, uh, they won't be. Um, it'll be it'll be Randall Gritchick as that fourth guy. We you know we put quotations there because he'll be in and out of the lineup. He won't you know we'll we'll see what happens with that. They're gonna try and get him in as much as they can. There'll be days where they can't. Jonathan Davis is definitely that next guy up. We we talked about it. We talked about it about a month ago between him and Josh Palacios. Both of them impre- impressing, and I think it goes Davis, uh, Palacios, maybe Forrest Wall. After that, I think those are the three options. But Davis is definitely that go-to in that sense. However, I know I was upset with the injuries a few days ago, but I am willing to be one hundred percent confident. I can't believe I'm doing this. That George Springer <laughs> is playing on Thursday. I'm guaranteeing it. Okay. I think I think it's more the Jays are being cautious from what we've been hearing. He wants to play. He's hitting off a tee now, and I think they're being really cautious, which is fine. I'm not completely against that at all. But the sounds of it is that George Springer wants to play. He will be ready for Thursday. That is all. I'm, that, I'm going to leave it there. And if that's the case, and even if and even if he's not. I don't think he's starting the year on the injured list as well. I think they'll keep him. I think he'll make the roster. Like he'll be on the roster, and then he'll sit out or what whatnot. But I don't think he starts the year on the injured list. And if that happens, I will be very surprised. But of course, the Jays aren't very truthful with their injuries, nor is any club. So we really don't know what's going on. We're just kind of guessing at this point, and none of us are doctors, so that's the other thing. But um, if he goes on the injured list, of course, it'll be Davis one hundred percent. But if not, um, Davis is going to start the year in Buffalo, and then. Um, Maybe at some point this year, if there's some sort of trade, we know we've talked about a possible Gritchick trade because of his, he doesn't really have a fit in this organization right now. He's that first guy to come up for sure. But George Springer will be playing Thursday. I won't go as far as saying he's going to be playing Thursday, but I think you're right in that he doesn't start the season on the injured list. I think he's, if he's day-to-day, the Blue Jays will carry him and just wait until he's ready instead of, you know, forcing them to whatever waste whatever the shortest stint on the injured list now is at seven days or 10 days. Um, all right, Jacob, let's get your thoughts on that and then we'll wrap it up. I think George Springer will play and I'm I'm not sure. I, I think if he isn't going to play, he's going to go on the injured list and we'll hear about that probably within the next few days. But I don't think that that's likely. I think that he will play. I think that his recovery, although we we don't know a, a ton about it, I, I do think that he will play. And like I said, so I want to say... he either starts opening day against the Yankees or is on the injured list. There's no in-between. Wow. Because here's the thing. I could be completely wrong, but I think that if he doesn't play, then he might be out for a little bit longer than just opening day. Obviously, they have a break in between that, but then they play, uh, what is it, 14 straight games? Like They have multiple weeks of straight baseball, so if he's not ready, I don't think that it would make sense for the Blue Jays to carry somebody that isn't able to play. I'll tell you one thing before you go. Teoscar Hernandez had the same thing last year. We know how long he missed. That's the only concern I have. The oblique. He was on fire. If you guys forgot about that, remember, it was the same thing. Strained oblique. Maybe a little bit worse, because I know it's Springer's grade one. or No, it's grade two, I think. Either way, Teoscar, we've seen it before. That's the only problem where I'm concerned. And remember what I said, guys. Opening day, first pitch of the season, George Springer's taking uh, Garrett Cole deep to center field. So it could happen. 
Okay. <laughs> well, he's got to play first. <laughs> yeah, he's got to be. <laughs> he's got to be healthy. I don't know. I can. I see him not playing Thursday, playing Saturday as DH. Maybe not in center field, but DHing. I see it happening. But we will wait and see. As with everything, five days till opening day. It's very exciting, and who knows what the future holds? Who knows what this season holds for the Blue Jays? But it's got to be exciting. We got our predictions in earlier. Um, a couple months ago we'll see how those pan out if they do pan out at all but like i said we're very excited okay we'll wrap things up there thank you very much to dan shulman again for joining us on this podcast bryson and jacob for joining me on this podcast as always you can check out our patreon at patreon.com slash section 138 pod you can support our podcast by rating and reviewing it on itunes you can also Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Section138Pod to stay up to date with everything we're doing. All right, we'll catch you next week after opening day. Oh,